when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Welcome to FT Politics, the weekly podcast on British politics from the Financial Times. I'm Jonathan Derbyshire, the FT's executive comment editor, and in this week's episode we'll be discussing the results of Thursday's by-elections in Copeland and Stoke-on-Trent and their implications. I'm delighted to be joined by Jim Pickard, the FT's chief political correspondent, Andy Bounds, our North of England correspondent, political commentator Miranda Green, and on the line from Westminster, political editor George Parker. Thank you all for joining me. Two by-elections took place this week in Copeland in Cumbria and in Stoke-on-Trent. Both were previously safe Labour seats and both became vacant after sitting Labour MPs stood down in order to pursue careers outside politics. In the week leading up to the by-elections, Labour officials had become increasingly concerned about the party's chances in Copeland. It turns out they were right to be worried. The Conservatives won the Cumbrian seat with the biggest increase in vote share by a governing party at a by-election for more than 50 years. Labour held on in Stoke, where the UK Independence Party leader Paul Nuttall failed to make the impact he'd hoped for in an area which had voted heavily for Brexit in last year's EU referendum. George Parker, let me start with you. Journalists and politicians routinely abuse the word historic, but it seems its use is justified in this instance. While the result in Copeland was not unprecedented, it is the first time a governing party has won a by-election in a seat held by the opposition since Mitchum and Morden in 1982. John Curtis, the doyen of cephologists, said this morning that Copeland is the worst result for an opposition party in a by-election since 1945. George, where does it rank for you? <laughs> well, it's certainly in my lifetime, I think, probably the most remarkable win in a by-election for a governing party. And even that Mitchum and Morden contest you mentioned earlier was fought in slightly strange circumstances. The Labour candidate defected to the SDP and then forced a by-election. It was in the middle of the Falklands War. I think you probably have to go back to at least 1960 to find a comparable result. So, yeah, we're usually full of hyperbole the morning after any by-election, but this one is remarkable. And I think probably it's about the worst set of results I can imagine for the Labour Party at the moment, not just because they lost in Copeland, the Tories, which is bad enough, but also because they managed to hang on in Stoke, which gives a glimmer of hope to Jeremy Corbyn, prolongs his leadership of the Labour Party, and also means that UKIP, who were beaten into second place there, are in danger of fading away to the margins, which is dangerous for Labour, because in the end it could put a load of Labour seats in the north in the sights of the Tories instead of UKIP. So all in all, a very bad night for Labour. Jim Pickard, this is clearly a humiliation for the Labour leader, Jeremy Corbyn. Where does he go from here? Well, I've just been to watch him at an event that was already in the diary for him, some kind of Brexit event at an establishment in Bankment. And he was just basically giving the speech, more or less, that he probably wrote several weeks ago. He was trying to shrug off the whole overnight experience. And he was asked very boldly by a broadcast media, when you looked in the mirror this morning, did you consider resigning? To which he simply said, no, thank you for your question. It's kind of a non-denial denial in that he maybe thought of resigning when he wasn't looking in the mirror. Who knows? I'm, I'm being a bit flippant there. In terms of taking this forward from now, the problem that Labour has is that 
people who know Corbyn very well think that he doesn't actually see himself as a future prime minister. He doesn't picture himself behind the desk in Downing Street running a G7 country. So there's that problem. At the same time, he knows that this is the one chance in basically a century for the left wing of the Labour Party to have this chance to fight a general election to try and get into power and therefore he would be letting the side down if he walked away and so I think what is likely to happen people fairly close to him think is that we'll get to the autumn conference in October and there will be some kind of resolution whereby you no longer need in a future leadership contest 15% of MPs to get on the ballot sheet they'll try and move it down to 5% and the significance of that is that it allows a Corbyn acolyte possibly an MP you've never heard of but within his very small clique within the PLP to take the baton forward into 2020. I think that seems to be the most likely thing going forward. We'll come back to the runners and riders in a possible future Labour leadership contest in a moment. Andy, you've spent time in both constituencies. How plausible do you think it is to see these two by-elections as effectively referendums on the leadership of Jeremy Corbyn? I think it's a little bit more complicated than that. He, of course, with his anti-nuclear stance that he's had for many a year, alienated people in Copeland, which is heavily dependent on the nuclear industry. Despite him then switching a little bit, the picture was already painted of him as an anti-nuclear person. But I have to say... Whoever was leading the Labour Party, I'm not sure they would have had a much better result. They might have been able to hang on to Copeland on the nuclear issue, but there's not a lot of love out there for Labour. And I think in Stoke, they were saved a little bit by the Tories now being the party of Brexit and a lot of UKIP voters maybe switching back towards the Tories, even as they were winning votes from Labour and they sort of got away with one. What seems to be alarming is Jim's point that actually there's no looking down at what might have happened here, what might be done differently. Are there any mistakes being made? If I could just step in very quickly, mm. when you say that any other Labour candidate might have had the same problems, bear in mind that Jamie Reid won with a majority of 2,500 only 18 months ago. Yeah, but he was a, a hard-working, popular local figure. I think nuclear obviously was a big issue, but I do think there's almost a sense that the austerity, the closure of the A&E unit, the local hospital, which were big issues, which should have been the Tories' fault, actually seem to rebound on Labour for saying, well, you guys have been an MP here for years and years and decades and decades. What have you ever done for us? Miranda, Jim mentioned Jamie Reid, the Copeland MP who stood down triggering the by-election. And like Tristram Hunt, who stood down in Stoke-on-Trent to take a job at the Victorian Albert Museum, they were both critics of Corbyn, weren't they? So it's inevitable that we're going to read these results through the lens of Corbyn's leadership and popular dissatisfaction with it. I think it is inevitable. And also, for example, the Labour candidate in Copeland was questioned closely in the days leading up to the vote because she was careful not to stand as the Corbyn candidate. And we've seen this actually in Labour fighting by-elections since Corbyn has become leader. They never fight it as the Corbyn Labour Party. They always fight it on local issues. And this time, as Andy's explained, that didn't quite come off, although they were even quite hopeful last night that campaigning hard on local NHS issues, potential closures of hospital wards, was going to pull it off for them. I think it's really, really significant that the Labour Party cannot now knock on doors and recommend that voters choose to put Jeremy Corbyn in Downing Street and you cannot get away from that fact although I completely accept Andy's broader point about the Labour dilemma because of course since the Brexit vote they've had to work out which horse to back. Do they back that portion of Labour voters who want to leave the EU or do they stick with their metropolitan voters who back remain. Interestingly, though, we've already mentioned the pollster John Curtis and his analysis. If you look more closely at Labour seats that voted leave, the Labour voters inside those seats mostly voted to remain. So I think this morning also there'll be a lot of soul-searching and possibly bloodletting within the Labour Party and within the PLP about the idea that 
Labour by forcing all of its MPs to back, for example, the vote to trigger Article 50 and by being very, very passive about the whole Brexit process have backed the wrong horse in terms of the legacy of the Brexit vote. Jim, you wanted to come in here. Yes, just on Miranda's point about bloodletting, what's been in place basically for the last six months or so is a very curious situation where most Labour MPs are refusing to criticise the leader in public, even where they think he's useless. So what we're going to have is a kind of bloodletting that's below the surface, a kind of hemorrhaging, if you like, of despair. And very few people sticking their heads over the parapet. And the reason for that is that they've tried to go public. We had that amazing rebellion last summer to have literally 160 MPs sign (laughs) a motion of no confidence in the leader and to have more than 60 resignations. That really is the word historic. And yet he was impervious to it. He just sat there, soaked it all up, won the leadership contest. And the Labour MPs know that the more they attack him, the more counterproductive it is because it inspires a lot of his followers. George, if I can just bring you back in. Jim sketched the parliamentary context there, but it's not as if these results came out of nowhere, did they? Labour's had a succession of very poor by-election performances over the last year. Yeah, that's true. And they all reinforce the central point that we've just been discussing, that Jeremy Corbyn is not going to be the next Prime Minister of Britain. The voters have clocked it, the media have clocked it, his own party have clocked it. And you just have to look at the ranks of Labour MPs at Prime Minister's Question Time. We were also watching this week, and there's a lot of focus on the deputy leader, Tom Watson, doing his famous dab move on the front bench. But if you watch the rows of people behind Jeremy Corbyn, the surly faces, as Jim was saying, they're just waiting, essentially, for the, the Corbyn revolution to start to eat itself. And there are signs of that taking place, the left turning on itself. But as long as Jeremy Corbyn's there, the party will continue to suffer by-election defeats of the kind we saw last night. Andy? Miranda mentioned the John Curtis research, which interesting shows that Labour voters voted for Remain in Brexit voting areas. And the answer for why that is, is that a lot of people who voted for Brexit don't vote at all in general elections. They don't vote for anybody and they're not going to go back and vote for anybody. And that was part of the problem UKIP had in Stoke. Just because you vote for Brexit doesn't mean you want Paul Nuttall in the House of Commons. And with the first past the post system we've got, there's a massive barrier to voting UKIP. And therefore, Brexit was a simple binary choice that people sort of affecting their lives. Most of them are probably lapsed Labour voters, but they probably lapsed in 97 or 2002, you know, lapsed decades ago, and just don't participate. And the big issue for politics is whatever we say about these astonishing results, the people that came out for Brexit who are now staying back at home again and will be staying at home again for the next general election, how do we reach those people and convince them that they should have a stake in the political process? I'd like to come back to the question of UKIP's raison d'etre in the wake of the EU referendum and indeed to Labour's disarray over Brexit. But Andy, just a question about local issues, because it's very easy to lump these two seats into some sort of undifferentiated north of England. But as you said earlier, there were specific local reasons why the results went the way they did. In Stoke, Labour seems to have benefited from what remains a very strong local machinery. I think that's true. They no longer run the local council, which is quite a surprise. That's run by other independents. But they do have the most number of councillors, and they've got a machine, they've got activists on the ground, they've got three MPs in the town as a whole, and they were able to mobilise that. In Copeland, they have the council, but to some extent it's a rather unpopular council and the local candidate they put up was a former councillor and therefore was associated a little bit with that old regime, wasn't a new face, and I think that told against them a little bit. George, we're going to have to let you go in a moment, but before you leave, I wanted to ask you about the party we haven't yet discussed, which is the Conservatives. They, of course, won in Copeland. It's an extraordinary success for them. Do you think this might tempt Theresa May, the Prime Minister, to call an early general election? After all, at the moment, she seems to be the mistress of all she surveys. (laughs) Well, there's been talk about this for a number of months. 
and the temptation is obviously there. And if she held an election the next month, she would be returned with a huge majority. But I don't think there's any chance of her doing that. For the reason that we're about to start the Brexit negotiation, and would her parliamentary party allow her to put that at risk or to complicate the Brexit process by having a general election? I think not. The goal of the Eurosceptics is in sight, Britain leaving the EU in 2019. She doesn't need any more of a mandate to do that. And the political problem is, if she were to have a general election now, the general election would effectively become a rerun of last year's referendum. It would give the Liberal Democrats, for example, a chance to campaign and mobilise those people who feel the country should have voted for Remain last year. It would actually give the Labour Party a bit of a cause as well, at least in some seats, so they would expose their divisions. But nevertheless, anything, I think, which puts into jeopardy Brexit would be entirely unpalatable to her party. So, yes, it's very tempting to have an election, but B, I don't think she's going to have one. But it's not as if the Conservative Party and the government doesn't have its own problems. And in normal circumstances, with an effective and powerful opposition, this past week or so might have been rather uncomfortable for the government. I mean, think of the furore in the home counties and in the southeast in particular over the rise in business rates. Yeah, but it helps if you don't have any opposition, doesn't yeah. it? As we've, just, <laughs> as we've just been discussing. You're right, the Conservative Party does have problems. And there is a certain fragility, I think, about the way that Theresa May runs her government, which was illustrated a bit by the business rates saga, where you ended up with a very ragged retreat at the end of the week, having tried to hold the line for a few days. They then eventually retreated. And basically, it showed that she tries to run the government with too centralised an operation in number 10. There wasn't proper communication with the Treasury or the local government department, which were the two departments covering the business rates issue. And there was no proper communication with the media team who had to go and explain the policy to journalists. So as a result, it looked rather confused. And although that's a kind of micro issue and in the long term, people will forget all about it. It does show that there is a certain fragility there, that if Theresa May's government is suddenly faced with a number of problems, let's say the Brexit negotiations go wrong, there's a crisis in the National Health Service, there's a terrorist attack, lots of things happening at the same time, even without an effective opposition, I think there's a fragility there which will come to be exposed for Theresa May. But for the time being, she's walking on water. She's the queen of all she surveys, as you say. And I don't think they'll be losing too much sleep about the business rate saga in number 10 at the moment. George Parker, thank you very much for joining us. Jim Picard, George was talking there about the fragility of Theresa May's operation. Yeah, I mean, just specifically on the business rates issue, because it's one that I'm quite interested in, I have a kind of counterintuitive position on this, which is that the business rates revaluation was something that's had a really bad press over the last week, but it does help those poor northern Midlands, Welsh areas dominated by Labour. It's something that would be really good for Labour if it goes ahead. I won't go into the boring reasons why, but it would be. The only problem is that it also hits London's Labour seats, and therefore Labour is too kind of conflicted over it to either back it or oppose it, a bit like they are over Europe. So on both of those issues, you can see how Theresa May, it doesn't matter that she only has a majority of around a dozen. If the opposition can't agree what she's doing wrong and she's also got the support from the DUP on numerous issues, then she can keep going without having a majority of 50 or 100 or 150. But this does suggest that there's a deeper problem. There's a problem that Labour has here which goes deeper than Jeremy Corbyn's leadership and dysfunctions around it. Nick Pearce, a former number 10 staffer under Gordon Brown, has written an op-ed for Saturday's FT in which he argues that Labour faces the sundering or the coming apart of its historic coalition. It's sometimes called the Hampstead-Humberside Alliance, the alliance between the northern working class and the urban intelligentsia. Miranda, do you think that's a fundamental problem? This is about more than Jeremy Corbyn's failure to mobilise 
is the party's working class base. Oh, for sure. It's a historic existential crisis moment for the Labour Party for that exact reason. And if you look at the sort of phenomenon that Jim's just explained over business rates, where in fact the May government is helping the North, helping the Midlands at the expense of London and the South East, you also see that the Conservative Party could be back in contention in those Labour heartlands, even if UKIP's claims to be the real challenger to Labour in those areas start to fade. And the Labour Party starts to look very, very vulnerable for that exact reason. And I think there is also another element which is often ignored because it's not terribly glamorous, which is the slow progress that the Lib Dems are making to cannibalise Labour votes in all sorts of seats because of marketing themselves as the party of Remain in order to recover from their near-death experience at the general election. So Labour has got problems on all fronts and no central message and is really losing its ability to claim that it can work for working people through Parliament, which of course is the founding principle of the modern Labour Party. And actually, you were talking about Theresa May as the queen of all she surveys. I think there's something very important here which is often missed because we focus so much on the collapse in the Labour Party, which is actually the very successful pitch that Theresa May is making to a certain kind of -of middle-of-the-road conservatism, which is just as appealing to working-class voters as any other income group. In fact, working-class Toryism, blue-collar Toryism, is probably the phenomenon to watch over the next few years. Andy, Miranda alluded just now to the threat that UKIP poses to Labour in its northern heartlands, but that threat has yet to turn itself into um, victory at a by-election. Paul Nuttall's failure to win in Stoke yesterday is just the latest in a series of failures. Now, he assumed the leadership of the UK Independence Party on a pitch to turn the party into the party of the disenfranchised northern working class, but it's not working out like that, is it? No, and I think there's a sort of lazy assumption that just because he's from the north, northerners are going to like him. In fact, Farage was quite popular in the North because he's a charismatic politician. Paul Nuttall, I think, struggles a bit with that. Just because... like anyone that I've met in the North. <laughs> well, you see some in the countryside, maybe, with the cat and the barber. But he has struggled to connect, I think. And I think that UKIP over-promises every time in the North and always finds a reason why it didn't do so well as it should have done. And eventually, it's going to be a little bit like the boy who cried wolf or whatever, the opposite, you know, that eventually they will not deliver and people will give up on them. They're actually losing some by-elections and council seats as well. So I think this predicted breakthrough is going to be very hard. uh, Can I I just butt in on UKIP? I mean, there's this existential question of now that the UK is, inverted commas, getting its independence from Europe, do we need a UK independence party? And the answer to that is they will keep going, not least because... There's another two or three years until Brexit actually happens. So they will keep ploughing on. And the really interesting thing about UKIP is that they have only one MP. They've never taken a seat off anyone else. And yet they're this volatile element in the complicated equation that is British politics. And they have a different influence in every single different seat around the country. And when you look at Matthew Goodwin's research on this, he's an academic who's done a lot on this, you have around 20 seats, he says, which they could in theory take off Labour. I'd probably discount most of them. He says there's maybe 40 or 50 seats where a strong UKIP showing can help the Tories. But there are also seats where if UKIP was to go away... It would help Labour. It's incredibly complicated and confusing. Jim, Matthew Goodwin, who you mentioned just now, has been predicting for some time an electoral breakthrough for UKIP. But Miranda, I I know you think that that's a fallacy, (coughs) that it mistakes what role UKIP has played in British politics over the last 10 years. And as Jim has just suggested, its role has not been as an electoral force, but as a force impelling the Conservative Party in this instance towards Brexit. Quite so. I think that to treat UKIP 
like any other party, is just a profound kind of category error. Whatever metaphor you want to choose, whether you see them as a kind of bumper car trying to push the Conservatives the whole time towards the right, and particularly their very successful mission to have pushed the Conservative Party to take Britain out of the EU, which is, of course, their core purpose, but also, as Jim has explained, to disrupt what should be the conventional electoral pattern in different regions of the country in different ways. That is their role. Whether they can ever change, as we talk about companies doing the whole time, from a disruptor of the market to a kind of functioning corporation in their own right in the political market, I have my strong doubts. And I don't think we should be surprised at all that Paul Nuttall can't win a seat. This is not, in a sense, what UKIP is for. And so expecting to track their progress as you would a conventional political party is to miss the point of UKIP, I think. Andy Burns. I, I think they're also having that kind of bumper car effect on the Labour Party now. So, for example, the campaign in Stoke wrapped itself in the flag of St George, played up the candidates' working class roots and local roots. And you see in the West Midlands where there's a mayoral contest coming up, Sean Simon, the member of the European Parliament, is talking about taking control for the West Midlands back from London. And there's this kind of, again, wrapping himself in that St George's flag. And yet where Labour challenges <laughs> are fighting in London against the Lib Dems, they're going to be pushed by the Lib Dems in an opposite position. So once again, Labour's going to look like it's trying to ride two horses at the same time. Well, exactly. The Stoke by-election encapsulated the confusion, the conceptual confusion around Brexit that you were describing earlier, Jim. So as Andy was saying, the candidate wrapped himself in the flag of St George. But as we know, and as we know from um, scrutinising his Twitter feed, he was quite a vocal Remainer in last year's referendum. So can Labour think its way out of this confusion, do you think, Jim? I think... After all we've said about Labour's existential problems and being divided over Europe and having lost Scotland, which is another massive issue and and a headache, I still think in politics, if a party can get its act together and if it can have a leader who has broad appeal, and I know Tony Blair lost his shine because of the Iraq war and because of some of his business activities after he left office, but the general tenet of New Labour and of David Cameron's Conservatives to be able to have a dynamic leader and the message that was fairly appealing, fairly mainstream it's maybe not a fashionable view these days, then things can happen and other parties decline. There's a sort of universal swing that happens, a sort of forces move in one way and then the other way. And in 10 years' time, we could be talking about all sorts of different things that we just can't predict at this moment. So it's always too early to write off the Labour Party. But is it in a dangerous position right now? Absolutely. And in the meantime, Miranda, the Lib Dems are the principal beneficiary of this confusion over Brexit. They are. And it's obviously a very different business that the Lib Dems are in, which makes it easier for them. You know, the Labour Party is a party which, even with the travails it's going through at the moment, somewhere remembers that it's supposed to be aspiring to government and therefore has to satisfy all bits of the country and appeal to a large swathe of voters. The Lib Dems are firmly returned to the role of minor party and therefore they're in the game of trying to capture a bit of the market. So it's much easier for them to have a clear stance as the pro-Remain party, now the party going so far as to recommend a second referendum even on whether we should leave the EU. And they are benefiting. What's really interesting, though, is that slowly all around the country, the Lib Dems are picking up local council seats, even in areas which are very strongly leave areas. So they're managing to return to this foot soldier pavement pounding local community politics technique, which built up their strength in the 80s and 90s. And crucially, they are, because the coalition is no more, they can fight Labour in Labour heartlands again which could allow them to retake ground in the cities of the north where they were very strong in the 90s before, of course, the Cameron Clegg Lovin soured the taste of the Lib Dems for so many voters on the left. Your point from earlier about the John Curtis research suggesting that 
Although Labour leadership is right to say that two-thirds of Labour seats were in out constituencies, the Labour voters in those areas were mainly Remainers. Exactly so, yeah. and now up for grab to be cannibalised by the Lib Dems. And let's remember the parts of the North where they just won't vote for the Tories, so the anti-Labour vote goes Lib Dem rather than Tory or even UKIP sometimes. Mm. Let's go back to internal Labour politics. Is there any chatter, Jim, about a possible leadership challenge anytime soon? No, I think, as I was saying earlier, that the strategy now is basically to stay on the sidelines and let Jeremy Corbyn fail of his own accord. So you let his own project play itself out, give him a reasonable chance, and then if it fails, obviously the Corbynistas will blame the media and they'll blame disloyal, inverted commas, Blairite MPs, but at least it won't be happening to a background noise of Labour MPs shouting at him. And I think it probably is the right strategy for them. But I think to be fair to Jeremy Corbyn, when you look at the fact that no Labour MPs will serve and he's got this sort of shadow cabinet of has-beens and nobodies and never-will-bees, um, there was a joke this morning about how Gareth Snell, the new MP for Stoke, has he resigned yet from the shadow cabinet? <laughs> it doesn't really help them when they don't have any support from their own people. And I can understand both points of view. You mentioned resignations from the Shadow Cabinet. There was one, actually, a couple of weeks before the by-election. That was Clive Lewis, the Shadow Defence Secretary. And Im- immediately after his resignation, commentators started to wonder whether he was to use the jargon on manoeuvres. Yes, so it was not the first manoeuvre conducted by him either. You had the moment back in Labour Conference in October in Liverpool where he got very crossover trident. He was the Shadow Defence Secretary at the time and he'd cooked up a deal with the unions whereby they would quietly bury the whole issue of trident renewal. And at the last minute, as he was about to make his speech, he got the orders from Seamus Milne, who's the head of comms and Labour, to drop that element of his speech. And he reportedly punched a wall in anger, although he's since denied that publicly. So I think he has already differentiated himself from the other Corbynistas in Parliament. He is considered fairly charismatic, fairly articulate, not very experienced. And does he have his own base within the PLP? And there's the danger that he seems to have left the Corbyn grouping, but he hasn't developed his own group of MPs supporting him as well. So he was hoping, I suspect, for resigning over Europe as a Europhile, that he could pick up some elements of the grassroots who were pro-Corbyn, but also pro-Europe. But I think even Clive Lewis would realise that the Corbyn phenomenon is a bit of a cult. Some people will hate me using that phrase. It's very personal support for him. So even people like Clive Lewis will have to wait for Jeremy to give up before they make a challenge. That's the received wisdom at the moment. Andy, we said earlier that the Copeland and Stoke by-elections were, in in some sense, referendums on Mr Corbyn's leadership. Jim just mentioned Clive Lewis's position on Trident. And, of course, the nuclear issue, specifically nuclear power, played uh, an important role in the Copeland by-election, didn't it? Copeland, of course, is a constituency which houses the Sellafield nuclear decommissioning plant. Yeah, indeed. There's uh, over 10,000 jobs at the plant and then thousands more in the supply chain and what's interesting about it is that many of them are very well paid jobs so actually although the rank and file would vote Labour there's an awful lot of management that would vote Conservative so it's not a typical sort of northern working class seat in that sense. I think Clive Lewis his army background would help with a lot of working class voters who want that sort of dose of patriotism. His Remain credentials, well, we've discussed that before, may not be such a big thing. I think the other one he's always mentioned is Dan Jarvis, the Barnsley MP, but I don't think he's quite ready for a suicide mission yet. But another ex-paratrooper who, who's in touch with the base. 
the benefit of any of these people is they don't have the long 30-year history of slightly questionable activities and hanging out with the wrong people that Jeremy Corbyn has had, which would really damage him in a general election. Miranda. Yeah, I quite agree with that. Everyone is expecting that when and if a general election comes along and Jeremy Corbyn is still Labour leader, there are terrible dossiers that will be produced on everything Jeremy Corbyn has ever said about Northern Ireland, for example, and the Middle East, and it'll be an utter disaster because of that historic baggage. I think there's a very interesting chart for those who like such things produced this week by YouGov on various figures in the current Labour Party which shows Jeremy Corbyn clustered in the most disastrous part of the chart with Ed Miliband and then up in the positive section of the chart you do have characters like Dan Jarvis who enjoys not just not terrible name recognition which is quite something considering uh, where we are in the electoral cycle but also a lot of approval and also I'd just like to pick out as a name to watch Lisa Nandy who also has quite high name recognition and is considered very good but of course as Jim was explaining earlier what the Corbyn team would like to do is nurture their own person to take on the mantle of the left because so much of this is just about the idea of that segment of the far left of the Labour Party thinking this is its chance. And they can always return to the fact that the so-called election-winning machine of New Labour hasn't won anything since 2005 at a national level, and they make the very convincing argument that no-one would lead Labour into victory in 2020, so they will always have that kind of shield. Andy, while Labour at Westminster unravels as as an election-winning machine, there are opportunities for senior Labour politicians to make a difference in local politics, specifically in the major cities of the north, in new elected mayors in places like the Greater Manchester Combined Authority, which former Labour Minister Andy Burnham is running for mayor. Yeah, I mean, that was a fascinating move. He'd obviously tried for the Labour leadership a couple of times and failed. Now decides that Westminster is a den of iniquity. and Actually, it's on the ground of real people where you make the difference. And I think his campaign will will certainly win, despite Labour's dysfunctionalism at the minute. And then I think he will use that as a power base to possibly look at national politics again, but really to show that Labour can run things, can do things. And you've got, as I mentioned before, the Westminster with Sean Simon. You've also got Steve Rotherham in Liverpool, who's a very interesting character, who is seen as something of a Corbynista, ex-bricklayer, stuck with Corbyn, was his uh, PPS, I think. But when you talk to him, he's sort of like, I'm a Labour Party loyalist. I stick with the leader, whoever he is. And has actually, again, become a more business-friendly can-do, go-to politician. And I think these guys, in the five years' time, when they've had probably four years will be the first term, they will be... And then there's Sadiq Khan in London as well. We'll be looking to say, I'm the saviour of the Labour Party. Well, I think the success of uh, Sir Richard Lees' Manchester City Council is an example for an, it's an alternative way of doing Labour politics. And, and yeah. done with a Conservative administration, very pragmatic. They probably have more support from George Osborne and yeah. now Theresa May than they ever had from Jeremy Corbyn. I mean, there's a separate question about whether Sajid Javid, uh, the community's minister, is as enthusiastic about the local devolution agenda as Mr Osborne was. Miranda? The deal has already been done on the powers, for example, for the upcoming West Midlands mayoralty. The London mayor now has considerable powers. These are very, very big jobs. It's not a sort of honorific title. It actually has enormous spending power. In the West Midlands, for example, they're experimenting with devolving things like the welfare budget. I mean, that would be absolutely huge. And you would have something that was much more akin to continental politics then, with figures having a a sort of base 
and a serious amount of experience with huge budgets and huge decisions in other parts of the country before they then were offering themselves forward for a Westminster leadership of a party, which would be a big actual cultural change in Westminster politics overall, mm. which tends to grow people up through the back benches of the committee system. They all have this same background that's of Oxford PPE and then being a bag carrier and then becoming an MP with no experience of the outside world. These testing grounds for leadership that are now growing up because of the devolution agenda are very significant for a change in British politics, potentially. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned Sadiq Khan earlier. I may have got the timings wrong, but I think from memory that his term in London ends roughly the same month, the general election 2020. So should Jeremy Corbyn still be in charge and step down, you have a prince across the water, literally a mile east of Westminster, running a capital city in one of the most major countries on the planet. I went to a Sadiq Khan press drinks a couple of nights ago and you know, he's very smooth around business people, around the media of all stripes. And yet he also had the support of the trade unions. Remember when he stood? So he could be that kind of character that might be capable of reaching a little bit further and wider and broader than the current Labour leader. And I'm sure he knows that. Whether or not he does strike and has the opportunity to strike is, is obviously a different question. On the powers of these mayors, it's mm. the voice as well, you know, like Boris and Sadiq become national figures. When the Olympians were going to return home to a hero's welcome, everyone assumed it was going to be London. Burnham stood up and said it should be Manchester. You know, we've got the velodrome, we've got the cycling team. He wasn't even elected at that time. He was just a candidate. And yet it happened in Manchester. Mm. The next flashpoint in British politics is going to be the triggering of Article 50, the divorce proceedings between Britain and the European Union. Miranda, how do you see the Lib Dems handling that? It's a slightly tricky one in that at the moment they have a lot of seats in the House of Lords, but... There's a nervousness, quite rightly, I would say, about seeing the unelected upper chamber overturn the will of the people and keep sending things endlessly back to the House of Commons in what we call parliamentary ping pong. So I think that all the opposition parties actually being a bit careful about this stage of the process. I think as the process goes forward, it's very unclear what kind of Europe is going to be our opposite number in the negotiations by the end of two years' time. And so I think it's probably quite good for, as we've explained, a minor party trying to capture a segment of the vote rather than trying to govern, to keep plugging away as the main opponents to the whole process. But as things become inevitable and people realise that we are actually going to leave the EU, you probably have to adapt your tactics of opposition to that reality and go as soft a Brexit as possible rather than endlessly insisting on a referendum to overturn the result of last year's referendum. Jim, Jeremy Corbyn said a few weeks ago that the fight over Brexit starts here, which bewildered some observers who thought it should have started before the referendum. How does Labour play it? Listening to his speech this morning, the Jeremy Corbyn take on Brexit is the one you would associate with the hard left across Europe, which is that they see the EU as this kind of institution controlled by bankers and shadowy corporate elites. And he was talking about corporate controlled mainstream media which we all sort of woke up slightly, and he was talking about this threat. In theory, all legislation in the repeal bill is going to be passed straight from Europe into British statute books. But what that could mean potentially is an opportunity to trim back red tape, as you might want to call it, over employment legislation, environmental legislation, and other things. Now, the government signalled they won't do that, but it's clearly a sort of fertile territory for Jeremy Corbyn and Labour to attack if they see that happening along the way. But he was saying that, Cutting back all this legislation could lead to huge American corporates coming in and taking everything over. And it just sounds a little bit conspiracy theorist, I think, for the man in the street, possibly. Andy, 
Talking about the man or the person in the street, one of the striking things about the Stoke by-election in particular was that Brexit didn't seem to resonate, certainly didn't resonate in the way that Paul Nuttall and UKIP had hoped it would. Well, I think the feeling in the streets is we've voted for it, it's going to happen and get on with it. There was some impatience I came across of people saying, why hasn't it happened yet? And as I said, I think a lot of people who voted for Brexit are actually non-voters who who just care about that single issue. One of the council leaders in Stoke, he's an independent now, he said, if you think of it, Stoke entered the European Union the same time as everybody else, mid-70s. That coincided with its decline line of the coal, the steel, the pots. There's still some pottery there, but it's not as significant. And people in their minds sort of see, well, we entered this thing 40 years ago and everything's gone wrong since. (laughs) But I don't think it's going to be a big issue for people. They just think we've been there, we've done that, we've moved on. There are horrible ironies, though, everywhere you look in that the slightly recovering and very wonderful ceramics industry in Stoke-on-Trent has actually been hugely helped by the EU because they were being slaughtered by ceramics dumping from Asia, which the EU has dealt with, imposed tariffs on Asian ceramics dumping, and actually there is a kind of revival going on in the town. So it does make you feel that the impressionistic view of voters of Britain in the EU trumps anything to do with the detail and I have to say, often it's the Brits who allow the dumping to go on. Absolutely. I think just to kind of zoom out slightly, I think we're in quite an interesting place at the moment, which is the honeymoon for Theresa May, perhaps, and also calm before the storm in that she's made it all sound quite straightforward and simple. And she's kind of got a fair wind of public opinion behind her. I think one reason that's possible is because the economy has held up firm since last summer. There haven't been any major negative signals on that one yet. And also we haven't got into the weeds of the negotiation with Europeans where things might start to look a little less easy and a lot more complicated and got the big debate this summer about whether or not we pay an exit bill of 40 to 60 billion euros, for example. And I think things are going to look a bit more unpleasant and there will be political opportunities but also political pitfalls ahead for all the parties. And I've no doubt we'll return to the details of those negotiations in future episodes. But that's it for this week. Thanks to all my guests. We'll be back next week for another instalment of FT Politics. Thank you for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.